Hello, this is Indigo Radio, a project of the Spark Teacher Education Institute. We are a group of educators seeking to deepen our understanding and make connections through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can find more information about Spark and Indigo Radio on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to our weekly shows wherever you get your podcasts. We are on the air every Sunday at 1 p.m. on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the station. We'll start our show today with a song, Dear Future Generations, Sorry, by Prince E.A. Dear future generations, I think I speak for the rest of us when I say, sorry. Sorry we left you with our mess of a planet. Sorry that we were too caught up in our own doings to do something. Sorry we listened to people who made excuses to do nothing. I hope you forgive us, we just didn't realize how special the earth was, like a marriage gone wrong, we didn't know what we had until it was gone. For example, I'm guessing you probably know it as the Amazon Desert, right? Well, believe it or not, it was once called the Amazon Rainforest, and there were billions of trees there, all of them gorgeous, and... Oh, you don't know much about trees, do you? Well, let me tell you, trees are amazing. I mean, we literally breathe the air they are creating. They clean up our pollution, our carbon. They store and purify water, give us medicine that cures our diseases, food that feeds us, which is why I'm so sorry to tell you that we burn them down, cut them down with brutal machines, horrific, at a rate of 40 football fields every minute. That's 50% of all the trees in the world gone in the last hundred years. Why? For this. And that wouldn't make me so sad if it weren't so many pictures of leaves on it. You know, when I was a child, I read how the Native Americans had such consideration for the planet that they felt responsible for how they left the land for the next seven generations. Which brings me great sorrow because most of us today don't even care about tomorrow. So I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry that we put profit above people, greed above need, the rule of gold above the golden rule. I'm sorry we use nature as a credit card with no spending limit, overdrafting animals to extinction, stealing your chance to ever see their uniqueness or become friends with them. Sorry we poison the ocean so much that you can't even swim in them. But most of all, I'm sorry about our mindset because we had the nerve to call this destruction progress. Hey, Fox News, if you don't think climate change is a threat, I dare you to interview the thousands of homeless people in Bangladesh. See, while, while you were in your penthouse nestled, their homes were literally washed away beneath their feet due to rising sea levels. And Sarah Palin, you said that you love the smell of fossil fuels. Well, I urge you to talk to the kids of Beijing who are forced to wear pollution masks just to go to school. See, you can ignore this, but the thing about truth is, 
It can be denied, not avoided. So I'm sorry, future generations. I'm sorry that our footprint became a sinkhole and not a garden. I'm sorry that we paid so much attention to ISIS and very little to how fast the ice is melting in the Arctic. I'm sorry we doomed you, and I'm sorry we couldn't find another planet in time to move to. I am... You know what? Cut the beat. I'm not sorry. This future, I do not accept it. Because an error does not become a mistake until you refuse to correct it. We can redirect this. How? Let me suggest that if a farmer sees a tree that is unhealthy, they don't look at the branches to diagnose it, they look at the root. So like that farmer, we must look at the root, and not to the branches of government, not to the politicians run by corporations. We are the root, we are the foundation, this generation. It is up to us to take care of this planet. It is our only home. We must globally warm our hearts and change the climate of our souls and realize that we are not apart from nature, we are a part of nature. And to betray nature is to betray us. To save nature is to save us. Because whatever you're fighting for, racism or poverty, feminism, gay rights, or any type of equality, it won't matter in the least. Because if we don't all work together to save the environment, we will be equally extinct. Sorry. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEWLP Brattleboro. Just a correction from the beginning. We're actually back on the air Sundays at noon. I'm your host today, Becca. Last month, I traveled to the Greening the Desert Project in Jordan to attend a permaculture course. This project is located in the Dead Sea Valley, just east of the West Bank in Palestine. It is an example of how humans can reverse desertification and bring back life to um, overused and, and desolate lands. By living in harmony with nature and applying permaculture design practices to the landscapes, the possibilities are endless. And I was able to see it firsthand. We'll connect to the Greening the Desert project in our social media links. Check them out. It's a really amazing project. Today, our society has developed through conquering lands and peoples, destroying our relationship with one another and the land in order to exploit and consume. Humans now see ourselves as above nature rather than a part of nature. Permaculture is rooted in the knowledge generated by indigenous communities worldwide, and it's a return back to earth-based practices, learning the rules of nature to enhance living systems and promote abundance. Today we will air an interview by Sam Parker Davis, who taught the permaculture practice, the permaculture course that I took. And he has practiced permaculture in 12 countries and over three continents. We'll be back after the interview. So thank you, Sam, for sitting with me and talking. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Sam has been my teacher in the permaculture course here at Greening the Desert. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about your story and what brought you to permaculture? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my grandmother was a permaculturalist in the 80s. She did her course with a woman named Rosemary Morrow. It was who I did my first PDC to with my first permaculture design course. <laughs> I did with um, the same teacher, which was 
I think, very special, a very unique opportunity. My grandfather was interested in alternative living as well. He built his own kilns to fire pottery and he lived off-grid in the forest with his friends and had a house that ran on car batteries and solar panels and um, grew his own food, had his own cows, all that sort of thing. So it was, for, for me it was normal and uh, boring, like weird. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something I was um, excited about or interested in. But I, had a, um, I was passionate environmentally from a young age. I grew up in a forest and I loved the forest. And whenever we'd leave um, the forest, I'd see, I'd see a world that made me sad. I'd see um, large-scale environmental destruction in Australia. And there, there's a general thing in it. The Australian population generally has a, a culture of environmentalism because they're such a small bunch of people that have owe so much to the natural world that they live in, such a unique natural world and um, such a profoundly intertwined natural world within the built environments. And for, um, for someone growing up in a forest in Australia, leaving and seeing the huge environmental destruction happening in Australia, it's a shock, it hurts you. Um, and there's more and more of an impetus, more and more of a, um, a pressure on young people growing up in today's world to be worried about the natural world, which is a good thing and a bad thing, I think, in many ways. Like, at school in Australia, a mandatory part of the curriculum is to, is to study global warming. It's a mandatory part of the curriculum. And for, for us, we would do them in two-week seg- segments, different parts of the curriculum. So we spent two weeks just looking at global warming. Um, in the school that I was in. And it was a uh, debilitating, extremely depressing thing to watch as a 12-year-old boy. It hurt my heart a lot. Um, and already I was, like I was an adolescent, already I was struggling with, um, with changing hormones and um, who am I and all this sort of stuff. And I discovered the internet before we'd done that. I started researching all sorts of things a 12-year-old shouldn't research. I was looking up, like... Um, crazy family structures and um, big corporations and um, events like uh, that, that between Nestle, Coca-Cola, companies like this where they'd um, hurt horribly Indian farmers or, or done awful things to, to rivers or babies in Africa, things like this. And I just was a bit, what can I do as one person? You know, um, what, what, can, what can I do? And the, the reality that came back to me was like, I'd be better off dead. That was kind of the thing that came into my head as a 12-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. And then watching all that, watching all the, the, the dead zones in the ocean, the um, destruction of forests, the, like we watched this video, this movie called Home. Mm-hmm. We'd watched it as part of our lessons. And it was just beautiful imagery of the most destructive things happening on planet Earth. Beautiful imagery of lithium and sulfur mines. Mm-hmm. Beautiful imagery of um, big dead zones in the in the ocean. Mm. Beautiful imagery of, of the huge fisheries and the big salmon farms where they take three times the protein from the ocean to feed mm. feed the salmon. All these sorts of destructive, crazy things that are just turning the world more and more dystopic. And as a young person starting their life, uh, just starting high school, and they've, they've still got. You know, five more years, six more years of high school until they can actually choose what they do with their life. 
it's um I think a shock to go, well, I've got no choice in in my life. Mm-hmm. I've got no how do I, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And at the end of that course, at the end of those classes, we got shown like a five minute video, one little video to give us a little bit of hope about this man in Jordan greening the desert. Mm-hmm. And it blew my mind. He said this thing that we could be the most beneficial element on planet Earth. And that stuck with me so heavily. Yeah. This idea that we as human beings could actually be extra- extraordinarily beneficial. Mm-hmm. We could actually be important to the Earth's survival. Mm-hmm. Not just a cancerous scum on it, but a symbiotic um, element. Mm-hmm. An element that wants to help Earth thrive, that, that is invested mm-hmm. in the Earth's health. Um, so from that point on, I started seeing solutions in lots of places. I started, um, I, we were homeless during that period of time as well, which I think didn't help my, my mental state. Of course not. Because yeah. <laughs> um, we, we, we'd move our things a lot, we moved from house to house to house. There was um, this collection of um, chemicals, of like household cleaning chemicals that had been in a box for quite a long time. And I looked inside and it was full of snails mm. living inside these toxic household chemicals. Wow. It was full of all sorts of moulds and all sorts of life. And it kind of like cemented this idea in me that there was nothing was um, unnatural, mm-hmm. nothing was unfixable, nothing was um, beyond us. Mm-hmm. Like just these little things like this. Mm-hmm. And then I, I did my permaculture design course, which I think everyone on planet Earth should do. It blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I went, uh, moved to a permaculture farm with a man named Jeff Lawton, who I didn't know when I was moving on to the farm, but he was the same man in the video that I'd watched. <laughs> um, when I got there and found out, it just was, it blew my mind. Yeah. It was the, definitely the place I was supposed to be. And I've been there the last five and a half years learning skills, learning how to be a beneficial element on planet Earth, learning how to farm, mm-hmm. learning how to grow my own food, build my own house learning how to look after animals, look after plants, learning how to connect systems together so that they're not just isolated elements as part of something, because it's all good to farm. Farming's great, gardening's good, collecting your own rainwater. Cities are fine. Mm -hmm. Um, Cars are fine. All these things. Mining is fine. Mm -hmm. It's just how we do it, whether we do it out of scale, Mm -hmm. whether it's too too large for the system to, to withstand, whether it's connected to something else to produce beneficial product. Because something we learn very quick when we become designers of environmental systems, nothing is bad. The only thing that makes pollution pollution is too much of something. There's nothing wrong with manure, but when you concentrate it into a stream, when you concentrate it in an environment, it becomes toxic. It becomes a problem. All of us have tiny bits of mercury inside of us. But if we concentrate that into a large enough amount, it kills us. Mm. Nothing's innately bad. It's all part of this earth for a reason. Mm. It's just how, um, in what expression it takes mm. and how concentrated that expression is mm. that makes it bad. Yeah. yeah. So you're starting to get into what is permaculture. <laughs> <laughs> but for those who don't know, can you describe the principles and the overall framework yeah, of permaculture? Absolutely. Permaculture is, and this, uh, there's a bit of a pattern in this, it is both very, very simple and very, very complex. 
Permaculture deals with all things on planet Earth. There's no thing that escapes the um, view of permaculture. There's no thing that is outside of what permaculture is. In the most simple way, it's just the ethical design of living systems. So being alive, being humans, any design that involves us is a living system. So it's about collecting different elements and synthesising them in a way or putting them together in a way that produces only beneficial results. And for, I think for a lot of the world, um, that might not be something that makes apparent sense straight away. But if you look at what are the products that that system produces... So if we, if we took a city like New York, mm-hmm. um, the product of New York, it might be, um, there might be academic products, there might be, um, there might be industry, there might be factory products, so, so materials and, in, and get brought to um, a place and get put together. Um, but there's also like waste products, like garbage, um, manure, mm-hmm. things like this coming from people. And those products, majority of them from a city like New York get put into destructive places. Mm-hmm. So barges full of manure will leave the port from New York and get dumped at sea, mm-hmm. which creates huge dead zones in the ocean. But that same manure, that same human poo, it's, all it is is nutrient and minerals that have come off cropland somewhere. Mm-hmm. They were plants or they were animals that got synthesised into minerals mm-hmm. that for, for the support of human life. They got consumed by humans and that, that same material comes out the other side in a different form and could be turned back into food, mm-hmm. could be turned back into a positive product, but it instead is a destructive product because of how we view the, this thing culturally or how we understand what we must do with this. Mm-hmm. We think that there's such a thing as a way and we can just throw it away. Yeah. We don't realise that that has repercussive impacts on all life on planet Earth particularly at this scale. We are now 7 billion people, 8 billion people, and our impact on planet Earth isn't small. And that's good and bad. If we decide to do good things, the future of this planet is incredible. Mm. If we decide to do destructive things, the future of the planet will mirror mirror that. We are much more powerful as individuals and as a collective than we realise. We have much more weight in what we do Um, than we understand. Mm -hmm. We are um, a profoundly unique species on planet Earth. We design, we innovate, we create incredible things. Mm -hmm. We take products from Earth and we assemble them in ways that we can build computers, we can build robots, we can come up with things like AI. It's amazing, absolutely profound. Mm -hmm. And we've been gifted this incredible intelligence to use ethically. We have a moral imperative, whether it's a religious moral imperative, a spiritual one, um, just an innate understanding of right and wrong, Mm -hmm. that for us to build a a world that's paradisical, to build a world where rivers flow, Mm -hmm. where um, our land is abundant with food, where life is good, where air is clean, where where people are happy, Mm -hmm. why would we not want this earth? Well, why wait until concepts of heaven and hell to discover these things when we're creating it here right now? Why create dystopic realities for people where they get horrible diseases that they have to live with for the rest of their lives? Where people get airborne lung infection from dust storms because they have no trees? Where people die of cholera and stupid diseases? Diseases that people with any 
reasonable immune system would be able to fight off. Mm. And yet people die en masse. Mm. We have enough food in this world to feed the whole planet a few times over, and yet there are people dying of starvation. Mm. It's wrong. It's a wrong thing. Um, And then the food that we do eat gives us diabetes, heart disease. The biggest killers on planet Earth is heart disease, cancer and diabetes, which is a product of our diets. Um, And yet we could be living long, healthy lives with clean air, clean water, in gardens and forests, Mm -hmm. in absolute harmony and paradise, we could. And it's not just a utopian, far out there, idealistic view. It's a reality that some people actually live. It's a, it's a reality that some people traditionally still live, and that's what we study. Mm-hmm. We, we, it's, an, it's an academic profession in permaculture to study a beautiful life, mm-hmm. how we can live a wonderful, wonderful life. Yeah. And for so many people, I think, that live in our modern world, ideas like this do seem unrealistic. Mm-hmm. That op- optimism has become a word associated with something that is not, um, not realistic that is not achievable, not possible. When the reality is, is we live in a pessimistic world. Mm-hmm. We live in a world where realism is equated with pessimism. Mm-hmm. And it's just not the case. The, the reality on planet Earth is, we, is very much up to us, mm-hmm. how we choose to identify things and see things. And if we choose to identify things and see things as a problem, we become one. Mm-hmm. And this is where we're at. We see so many problems and we see solutions. And we design our systems to mirror that. Mm-hmm. We create problems on planet Earth. That's just what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes a simple decision to turn those problems into, into solutions, to see those problems as solutions, mm-hmm. to see those problems as opportunities for ethical positive action that will increase the quality of our life. Um, in whatever way we choose, whatever way we see fit, we're only limited by how we understand these things. Um, and that's what will create our future Earth. I just want to wrap that up with a quote. Sure. Um, the quote that a man named Bill Mollison who put together the manual for permaculture, mm-hmm. put together um, probably the, the biggest, most important book um, in this body of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, his quote is, while the problems of the world seem increasingly complex, the solutions remain embarrassingly simple. Mm-hmm. And it is, we should all be very embarrassed. Can you, you've worked in permaculture projects all over the world. Can you talk about like one, one or two in, in particular that have stood out yeah, to you? Sure. I think um, there's like some really stark ones, like working in a war zone. I think, you know, I don't know whether you call it scars or um, like memory imprints, mm-hmm. like things I'll never forget, stories that I've heard that I'll never, I'll never shake that out of my mind. Yeah. Um, and I, I think they're. They're perspective building. They really show you something. Because, um, again, like the whole utopian vision for the future mm-hmm. and not, um, not integrate the realities of the horrors of the world mm-hmm. is, um, is naive. Mm-hmm. And I think it's quite important to, to integrate those things. To know what's happening, to, to know what to do about it. Absolutely. Yeah. And to just understand that it's part of human nature, it's a part of the world that we live in, these mm-hmm. things. So I worked on a project in Iraq um, in a place called Aldea, which was the last site for um, the, the attack or the, the fight between the Iraqi government and ISIS. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the Americans had been through that area at one stage, which when you look at 
these things like ISIS. This is a little bit of a politically loaded thing to talk about. But they're often reactions to colonialism. Mm -hmm. They're reactions to um, people being subdued, people being crushed. And then we get these problems like this. Mm -hmm. Like, again, why, why not, for the US, create a strong ally with Iraq rather than try and crush them and turn them into a big problem? Yeah. Um, which is what I think I, I saw in Iraq. I saw um, a beautiful people. The Iraqis are even sweeter than the Jordanians in their hospitality. Mm-hmm. There are people that historically have been, they're probably the most worldly people on planet Earth. Because being in between the Tigris and Euphrates River, anyone who wanted to travel from Europe, from Asia, from Africa, they passed through Iraq. There was no way around Iraq. There was a way around Jordan, if, if you want to go up through Syria than through Iraq. But to go any further up, like through Russia or something like that, is cold. Mm. If you wanted to travel, likelihood is you were going to pass through Iraq. Mm. So historically, they're incredibly sweet. They're incredibly worldly. They're incredibly um, hospitable. Mm. And to see the state of Iraq now, this this country that used to be part of the Western hippie trail, you know, Mm. you get a plane or get a trip from, from a Western country, and start in Palestine and travel across through the Middle East and end up in India. Mm-hmm. India is the only place through there that hasn't been totally obliterated by war. Mm-hmm. Um, so India is kind of like the last idea of this sp- spiritual place for, for, um, for Westerners to go experience. Mm-hmm. But in the 70s, the hippie movement mm-hmm. was born from the Middle East, was born from people travelling through that area meeting people that were um, kind, <laughs> people that weren't purely corporately driven, mm-hmm. people that had some sort of sweetness in their interaction and in their um, understanding of how the world worked, mm-hmm. a little still, still quite tribal, still quite nomadic, still quite um, um, indigenous mm-hmm. in, their, in their relationship to the world. Of course, it's got its problems. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's still tribalism within the Middle East. I'm not saying it's a perfect place. Right. But to see um, a political situation like ISIS mm-hmm. be born out of such a sweet place, you have to think, why did that happen? Mm-hmm. I think that was a big confrontation to me. Like in, in the, the bombing of, of Ayodhya, Talafa is the, the closest, biggest, bigger town. Mm-hmm. It's near Mosul, okay. um, if people know anything about the politics. Yeah. And so the, um, the buildings were completely levelled, completely blown up. I'd never seen so many blown up buildings in my life. Thick, thick, thick bars of Rio just twisted. It's just like, like big bombs, big bombs. Um, and so there was a lot, I, I met people living in building rubble um, and they're running water, they'd go and collect it from, um, from other places. Mm-hmm. Um, and that water often wasn't clean, um, definitely not drinking quality. Um, and these people would live in the building rubble with smiles on their faces. Mm-hmm. They'd live in building rubble, growing their own vegetables. They'd live in building rubble and they'd invite you into their house to feed you what little food they had. Mm-hmm. And I can't say they had little food on their shelves because they didn't have shelves. Mm-hmm. Like, this is, um, I think, such a stark realisation to realise just that the little things we do in our life, the day-to-day products of which we have, like the fact that we... We have petrol in the abundance that we have in developed countries, things like this. is a product of that person not having shelves to put their food on. Mm. Um, and to sit with a person in, in a situation like that, 
to that they understand they, they're aware of the politics. Yeah. The Middle Eastern people aren't. Um, they live it. Yeah. <laughs> but yet they're so kind. Yet they're so sweet. They they see a white person and it's not a, you're not welcome here. It's a, an obligation on them to be to be hospitable and to be kind. Um, so we we worked on a project over there where we corrected the grey water, the black water system. So, Which is white for people who don't Yeah, I'll explain. <laughs> so the, 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 the pipes that carry people's poo, wee, um, shower water around Iraq, they got blown up during multiple wars <laughs> through, through like, um, years of um, destructive things. And so it's very, very common um, all through the Middle East for um, black water, for, for people's poo and urine, um, to flow across the street, like it used to be common in Europe before the Arabs, before the Arabic people came over to Europe and introduced them to them hygiene. Yeah, <laughs> showed them how to wash their hands, how to take care of their poo, and um, so now after um, uh, some quite big um, destructive things, I saw houses that must have been hundreds of years old built built out of stone and mud hundreds, maybe thousands of years old, um, still standing and blown up. Mm-hmm. I saw great history lost, um, I, and I can only imagine how they would have dealt with these things in the past. Because mm-hmm. it's not like they didn't poo and wee before the war started. Mm-hmm. It, would, it would have been an interesting study to do, to understand what the traditional methods were. Yeah. But um, the modern methods is they flow across the street into big ponds that breed mosquitoes, that dogs swim in, and that kill small children and sick adults. Um, if we talk about malaria problems, things like that, um, in a climate as dry as Iraq, malaria is man-made. Yeah. It is not a natural disaster. It's the same thing with dust storms in Iraq. They're man-made. They're not a natural disaster. Mm-hmm. The, the, these things that, that kill people unnecessarily are man-made problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, get, they complexify the more and more we leave them. Yet the solutions, again, they remain embarrassingly simple. Mm-hmm. We can take this water, and through natural processes, the same way a stream is cleaned by plants in a stream, by reeds, the same way water is cleaned by, by air and by, by rocks, by natural processes, it's very simple to clean water, no matter how toxic it has become. Mm-hmm. In Oman, they clean water used for... Um, in um, uh, crude oil, oil extraction, so mixed with crude oil, mixed with all sorts of um, industrial wastes, heavy metals. Um, this water gets cleaned by plants. Wow. It gets cleaned by the biggest reed bed system in the world, mm-hmm. and out the other side comes clean water. This is not new. Mm-hmm. It's not um, even a new thing for humans to know. It's something that humans have done for thousands of years and something that humans have relied on since the dawn of time. It's not, um, it's not new. Yeah. And for us to um, condemn people to um, painful deaths from malaria, cholera, famine, um, these sorts of things, because they don't have the resources to grow food, which is not, never true. Right. They don't have the um, ability to, to be clean or to clean their water, which is never true. Mm. Um, it's naive, it's silly. It's um, sad. Mm-hmm. And so what we did, uh, just as an example for people of what, what's possible, um, we took the building rubble 
of uh, blown up houses and we assembled it in a way that um, water flowed through it. So we dug big, big, big trench mm -hmm. that led from a, from a pipe um, coming under a road which had green, smelly, poo-smelling sludge coming out of it. And we took that water through a, through a crude filter, just went through some, some rocks, mm -hmm. so to filter out um, any dead dogs, dead children, mm. um, anything large, like a rock that might have come through that large pipe, just to make sure that that didn't come into the system. And then take that water um, through um, lots of small bits of, build, of building rubble, where we planted our reeds. Um, through a missile, we took it. We made we because we didn't have any pipes on site. There was a, a missile shell that we cut in half and used that as our as our delivery pipe. Um, and then we took yeah the water through um, about two hundred three hundred meters of this, about um, ten to twelve meters wide, so three three thousand square meters, three square kilometers of, of area. Um, no, that's not three square kilometres. <laughs> 3,000 square metres. Um, of area until it arrived to um, a collection pond, which would have been be better off a tank, but we couldn't afford to, to put a tank. Um, so that whole area just got cleaned by plants. Wow. It just got cleaned by, by the roots of reeds, mm -hmm. um, extracting minerals. Ex no new materials. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, we, we brought in metal cages. Okay. We had a local person fabricate mm -hmm. out, of, um, out of metal um, these little cages that we could assemble rocks in. So we could put the bigger rocks into those cages and have them stand up um, so that we could assemble the little rocks around them. They weren't necessary if we had have had more time to dry stack um, those materials, but it was much easier, much quicker for us to just have those cages assembled. Those were, and that and concrete blocks. We also created a wall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those were the only new materials that we had on site. Mm -hmm. And for these people, all those resources are available to them. Yeah. It's not something they couldn't do, but it's not um, knowledge they have. Mm -hmm. It's not something that's um, given to them. Now they do. All yeah. Work Absolutely. And it's something that's now replicable as well. It's something that's now visible and people can replicate mm -hmm. and costs very little to do. All, all it really costs is time and diesel. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if you wanted to do it just by hand, not even the diesel, but it would um, take a lot longer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're here now in Jordan at yeah. a project called Green in the Desert. Can you talk mm -hmm. about the history of this place and mm -hmm. what what your hopes are for the future? Yeah, absolutely. So greening the desert is quite an iconic, quite a beautiful site in that it just demonstrates and shows to people what's possible. That we can green very arid lands, we can green land just on solid bedrock. Um, this land is the long, one of the longest farmed, continually farmed lands that we have in recorded history um, on planet Earth. So for 12,000 years, this land has been farmed. Um, it's been farmed for wheat, it's been farmed for sugarcane, it's been farmed for bananas. Mm -hmm. And the sugarcane indicates how fertile this place was. Mm -hmm. If there was sugarcane here, that means that there was a water table very close to the surface. Mm -hmm. And before the sugarcane, we have depictions of lions. Mm -hmm. Now, that may, might sound just novel and interesting, but for lions to be supported, they need to eat things. 
So for there to be populations of lions, there has to have been huge numbers of game, of different types of game. There has to have been forests for those, that game to have eaten and to have lived off. This desert was a complex forest system. This desert was covered in trees and deep fertile topsoil. This desert was not a desert. It was a man-made desert over 12,000 years of agriculture, over Roman exploitation, Greek exploitation, Nabataean exploitation, uh, Mesopotamian exploitation. This has been pushed and pulled from forest into desert. And what we're demonstrating on a little site is how quickly we can change that story. How quickly we as human beings, rather than being the, the forces that turned forest into desert, can be the forces that turn desert into forest, mm. that can reverse and correct the mistakes that we've made in very rapid, very short amount of time, mm-hmm. in a very scientific, provable way. Mm-hmm. Proof is in what you see. Yeah. You can come to the site and you see, you see a forest. <laughs> you see a forest in the middle of a desert. Um, and these sorts of things, are, they've been replicated on massive scale. Again, we've done, we've done areas the size of Belgium. They've been replicated in drier climates than this. They've been replicated in smaller, bigger, more fertile, less fertile, and everywhere in between. Mm-hmm. Every corner of planet Earth, this, this method is applicable, or th- this science is applicable. Mm-hmm. The methods will differ. Yeah. The techniques will differ. Mm-hmm. Um, but this just demonstrates um, how what might seem impossible is very doable. Um, and I think it, the, the magic in it isn't the size of the site, isn't the, even the location, it's just, I think, for people, the fact that it's a desert. Mm-hmm. And much more impressive things could be done all over the world. Mm-hmm. Like the, with, with the knowledge that we now have compared to just the beginning of this site, we started 20 years ago by a man named Jeff Lawton. Um, he got a contract with a Vietnamese aid company, a, a Japanese aid company. He got flown into Jordan and started a project and funding got pulled on him. Three years into the project, he developed this system where he was creating something that isn't often done in aid, in aid projects. He was doing something where he was making self-sufficient aid, aid that would fund itself, that wouldn't need an aid company involved anymore, which is perhaps the most necessary thing for us to do in aid. Um, because many aid projects are reliant on small uh, on, on short bursts of money, often very, very large, mm-hmm. and they create a project that's reliant on oncoming in- income, and they create a local um, population that's dependent on those outside resources, mm-hmm. and then those outside resources finish, stop coming, and either the local people turn into um, people of a corrupt nature, mm-hmm. looking to take more aid funds, looking to su- support their family, support their lifestyle with more and more corrupt aid funds, more aid funds to use in a corrupt way, or they've um, built a lifestyle they can't uphold anymore and become uh, bankrupt, Mm -hmm. become depressed. Mm -hmm. Um, So most aid does more harm than good. Mm -hmm. And for Jeff to develop a model like this, where it's a self-sustaining aid project, Mm -hmm. that is profound. Mm -hmm. That is an amazing step forward. And so that's after the aid funding got pulled, which was exactly what Jeff was trying to get ready for and didn't get ready for in time. Mm -hmm. Aid funding got pulled and the land was not accessible to him anymore, Mm -hmm. which was the biggest problem. He'd built an education centre, Mm -hmm. 
which is what he was going to start the funding of the project with before they got the crops up properly. And if he had been allowed to set foot on site, the site could have continued. If he had been allowed to um, continue the project, it could have continued. Mm -hmm. But not only was the funding pulled, but the land was locked up in um, obscurity Mm. and um, bureaucratic corruption. Jeff, later on, he had the money. He came back and asked to buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just quadrupled the price on him. So that he, because he was a foreigner coming in with cash. And that's what aid, um, our corrupt locals, we used to aid money. That's what they do. Yeah. They ask for more money than things are worth. And um, they get themselves in, in the, their whole country into all sorts of horrific problems because of it. So what Jeff decided to do was buy a new piece of land. Um, already he'd met his wife on the last project and they'd married and in that time they'd done all sorts of things all over the world mm-hmm. they'd, they'd helped indigenous populations in Australia they'd travelled back to Vietnam and done more work in Vietnam they'd travelled to Mexico they'd travelled all over the world helping all sorts of different people mm-hmm. and for Nadia Jeff's wife the calling to come back to her family 31 brothers and sisters mm-hmm. huge, huge families for her to come back to um, this land and help them uh, was uh, profoundly important, yeah. extremely important. So Jeff and Nadia came back and um, and they established this site. It's 12 years old now. Mm-hmm. And they've given uncountable amounts of Jordanians jobs. They've, they've taught uncountable amount of Jordanians how to feed themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, they've installed gardens and food forests in schools in the surrounding area. They've taught local people how to garden on solid rock, solid bedrock. Mm-hmm. There are amazing examples all through this area now of people b- building wonderful little gardens mm-hmm. um, in a seven-year-old Palestinian refugee camp. Mm-hmm. Um, this site for me, again, it's just the profound um, impact of one drop what, what ripples we can create as one individual, what things we can do if we're devoted towards an ethical life, what we can do as human beings. Mm. We might see the problems as huge and insurmountable, huge things that are um, so scary to confront and what can we do as one person? But that's not what we should be asking. Um, in our life, this is all we have. We only have our life to live. We have no influence on anything beyond our life. And we only have this life to do with what we have. And this life will pass us by and it will end. Mm. And we have the decision in every moment to decide, will I be an ethical human being? Will I act well? Will I act good? Will I do the right thing? And this choice, it's in every second of our life. It's in every second of our day. How do I better myself? How do I do the right thing? How do I be better? And I found no body of work that works in, in, on the practical world, on pragmatic, real things. I found nothing that helps me be a better human being on this planet, in this life, than permaculture. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM. We just aired an interview with Sam Parker Davis. And he is working with the Green in the Desert project now in Jordan. And we're going to hear from two more participants in the course that I attended, Abdullah and Mohammed. And then we'll come back. 
I'm sitting here with Mohammed Zaytoun. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Nooz. Uh, we're here together at Greening the Desert in Jordan. And Mohammed, you've been involved in permaculture for a long time. Can you talk about your experience? Right. Um, I started my journey studying um, permaculture to find a solution for um, uh, my desire to have, to have my own farm. And um, one of the solutions, or maybe the, um, uh, the targets, to have uh, to make some some place to convert some place to be green and um, one of the main uh, places we have in Jordan just talking about permaculture is green in the desert so I just found the place and visited the place I met Jeff Lawton and he gave me a scholarship to join and to uh, study Again, with a, let's say, with professionals, mm-hmm. not only self-study. And yeah, I've been here since 2018. And I came back 2019 again. I spent a few months until the corona thing. And then I went back. Uh, every time I, I come and, and go. 2021. 2023. Yeah, it's like um, a home place for me. I keep uh, uh, observing the changes we make every year with each group we do here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, too much progress. And the site here is like, um, um, I don't know how to say it, but I can see the the um, evolution happening if I can say evolution mm. yeah so it's like um, too, uh, too many we will keep adding like uh, fruit trees, veggies every time we can find like uh, new production happening the system's still running and yeah we'll keep, we'll keep adding details mm-hmm. and for people who don't know the site or who have never visited, what are some of the techniques that you find work the best here for what's what we're calling greening the desert? Like maybe maybe you can tell a little bit about the evolution and how things have worked. Sure, harvesting water. Harvesting water system is one of the best solutions we need to do in Jordan. And um, beside uh, uh, the gray water systems that we have here in the place, it's really important because in many places in Jordan, we any that's right. We have the the whole system, the the big systems that serve like neighborhoods, but we still need it in many places. And it's another um, method to use our water again and again, as we as we should any reuse our resources every time as much as we can. Mm-hmm. Nice. Which yeah. I which a good way to. Um, uh, to produce more trees, more fruits, and more crops, mm-hmm. especially trees, and yeah. Because how much does it rain here? Maximum hundred fifty mm-hmm. millimeters a year. Yeah, and do you have an estimate of how much water is saved through the gray water system? Uh I I can't measure it this way, but what I know that every 
single drop we use here it's been like purified again and we did water some some trees mm -hmm. if not for uh, fruit production it would, be, it would be for timber production if i can say mm -hmm. yeah and how do you think a project like this is working to influence the whole of jordan or let's say not the whole of jordan but how is it helping other people in jordan a project like greening the desert um greening the desert is um is a minaret for me so yeah i believe that we keep everyone like the jordanian students being here we wherever we go we spread the idea as much as we can as the site itself becoming more famous and famous actually um uh, the site itself the community here in, in the site is active towards helping the community around and this is good uh, and it's not only about the place itself but um, when you go to a village and you find uh, like many people yani applying these techniques and technologies uh, it's another way to promote yourself mm -hmm. and what i know as i know yani i keep i i i worked in many places in jordan north and south uh ev everywhere i go i find someone knows about again the desert mm -hmm. that's nice and you're also involved in a project in amman sure and i forgot the name even though you just yeah, told me that's jordan nature academy yeah can you tell us a little bit about it yeah jordan nature academy is um uh, a community based on local um uh, citizens and we all uh, do yeah we, we all do um gardening basically uh, we apply permaculture uh, concepts as much as we can mm -hmm. and um the community itself built to have a good space good and safe space for children to teach them so they can um grow in a in a in health conditions if we can say like we learn good stuff uh safe company Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so I I believe it's a good place for kids and for even for families. What kind of activities do you do? Um, we we do planting. Mm -hmm. We um, prepare saplings and the horticulture like, so yeah, saplings, seedlings. We plant these. We prepare beds. Even we teach them uh, like um, scientific things about how to use water to uh let's, let's say like water living and this stuff to manage that place uh, we search for the bugs and for the weeds mm -hmm. we learn about these natives um yeah we gather like crops like uh, sometimes you have like uh, veggies and maybe herbs fruits when mm -hmm. when it's the season yeah yeah it's such a great way to learn about science yeah. being outside and seeing it Sure. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's a lovely way. And what are you hoping for the future in terms of permaculture and these projects? I hope I can see it in every street, mm -hmm. not only houses. So everyone is sufficient and we all live in abundance. Mm. 
Please. in the whole country. Yeah, I hope so too. Inshallah. <laughs> Thank you so much. No worries. Okay, I'm sitting with Abdullah. Abdullah, you're 15. That's right. Yeah. And where are you from? I'm originally born in Pakistan, but I grew up in New York City. And we met here in Jordan doing the permaculture course. Yeah, it's wonderful. What's something that's like, what are some of the big learnings for you from the permaculture course? Well, this isn't exactly a learning per se, but... I found it astounding how many people are actually into permaculture. Learning-wise, I'm astounded by how many techniques there are in permaculture to essentially rejuvenate land. I always assume greening the desert meant just planting a couple of trees here and there, maybe pour some water in it, that's about it. But I find it incredible how much work goes into this stuff. Mm -hmm. And what are some of those techniques or some of the work for people who don't know? Some of them involve using local plants as cover crops. You essentially use the local shrubbery you find around an area to prepare the soil for more heavy-duty work. Mm -hmm. And yesterday we did a lot of work with the compost. What was that like for you? It was pretty nice. I'm fasting as it's Ramadan, so it did get a little uncomfortable for me with the heat, the smell, and just being hungry. But it was really fulfilling work. And what was the process for people who don't know about compost? So this compost is large-scale method you would use for once a year to essentially have compost for the rest of your garden for the entire year. It involves starting out with the base of um, food scraps and other items. Then you put some dirt on it, water the whole thing down. I'm surprised as to how much water it actually took. We were putting it on for 10-15 minutes and it was barely soaked halfway through. Then you put more food scraps, put some more dirt, and continue with the water. You continue until the pile is about one and a half meters tall. Once you got that, you let it sit for a couple of days. Then you turn it over and let it sit for another couple of days. By then, the compost should be hot enough that if you stick your arm inside, it should burn. This is called the ouchie test. You then flip it over again after another couple of days. Stick your arm inside again. If it hurts, it's good. Flip it over another time and let it sit for 10 days. Once that's done, you have to flip it over one last time, let it sit for another few days, and you've got some nice, good quality compost. And you were talking about greening the desert. Um, how do you think that these, some of these methods can be used later on in your life or in other parts of the world? So today we saw a video called the Albaida Project, which was greening the desert in a small valley in Saudi Arabia. Now, seeing the work that they did there, it was incredible. They did what we have done, what the people here have done at the Greening the Desert Project here in Jordan. But that was done on a much larger scale, over a much larger time frame as well. If you can implement these methods correctly, it isn't even that hard. If you can implement them correctly, you can re-green entire swatches of desert and barren landscape. Anything else that you want to share from your learning so far or your thinking moving forward? Um, yeah, I find it really cool that anyone can be a permaculturist. I see people here from all over the world. Becca here is in Morocco from the U.S. Mm -hmm. There's another person who's come from, who's come from the U.S. as well and is staying here in Jordan. 
it's incredible seeing what people can do and are doing constantly. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Indigo Radio today. That is the end of our show, Discussions on Permaculture on WVWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM. We're going to go out with a tribute to Michael Jackson, children singing from all over the world. So